I, I don't know if you got all the text messages that I sent you. Um, I have not read them yet. <laughs> this article is is something else. So before we get started, I want to talk about something. So the listeners know, we usually meet every week. And due to internet issues and just general backlog for editing episodes, um, we chose not to meet last week. So I had more time than usual to do some research, some reading, some listening. I've listened to a lot of interviews with Damon Lindelof. I'm reading a phenomenal article by Javier Grigio Marks Watch, uh, who was a writer in the first season and the second season. In fact, the only writer who transferred from first season to second season, um, not including Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse. And I feel the need to... I don't know if I want to apologize for some of the things that I have said about Damon Lindelof because I do feel them very strongly. I do feel that Damon Lindelof has a penchant for needless contrivance in storytelling and tends to go way overboard on the troubled family tropes. All of that said, from the interviews with him that I have been listening to and watching and from the articles that I have been reading, I feel that I have a much better understanding of the pressures and the just sheer obstacles in his way making the show. <laughs> I know that this probably sounds like Lindelof came to my house and threatened my family. That's not, uh, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here because it, as I was texting to you, Derek, uh, before we started this, one of the things that we talked about either on our very first episode or during our pilot episode recording is that we talked about how Lloyd Braun was a huge, who was the head of ABC at the time, was a huge advocate for the series and really, really wanted to make it happen and was pretty much the guy who who got thing, who got the ball rolling and who gave Lost his blessing. And you had mentioned that you had heard that he had, uh, the president of ABC had come into the show and basically the previous guy had greenlit this thing. He had no idea what to do with it. Is that, you mentioned something like that, right? Yeah. And like he was, he knew he was going to be fired or something. So he was like, fuck it. It's not my problem. So it turns out Lloyd Braun did leave as the head of ABC during sometime during the production. And Stephen McPherson came on during the production and very much was, I don't want to say in the dark, but basically was handed this as a legacy and, did not have the uh, belief in it that Lloyd Braun did. He basically was like, all right, well, I guess I'll, I guess I have this thing now. I don't want to drone on too long about this because this could be a whole separate episode, but learning about the things that the writing team had to not do what they had to do. The fact that the network consistently told them that they didn't want it to be a sci-fi show and that anything that was remotely woo-woo like that was shot down. The number of episodes, the number of seasons, the fact that Lindelof did not come on to the show expecting to be showrunner, the fact that it was meant to be J.J. Abrams and that he was very much thrown into the driver's seat and that J.J., his visits to the show and his creative direction became less and less, um, much more quickly than was expected. I learned that Lindelof actually fell into a very dark place for a while, uh, just a very depressed place because of just the pressures that he had to undergo and the breakneck pace of having to 
figure out characters and stories and everything. I still maintain my criticisms of Lindelof, but I have a lot more respect for what he had to go through and the fact that he and his writing team, his rotating cast of writers, were able to put together as coherent a story as they were. We can talk more in the future about the different revelations of Mark's watch and and the things that Lindelof has said since then. But um, yeah, I just kind of wanted to say that at the top, that I making any kind of entertainment is difficult, especially one that has as many masters as Lost had. And if I've given Lindelof flack in the past, I now amend that somewhat to just say he did a good job, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's, been a, no. it's been a very enlightening couple of weeks. I, uh, as you've been talking, I'm, uh, I've been perusing <laughs> this article. Cause, okay. So my understanding is this is no longer live. You had to get this from the internet archive. Yeah. It's, um, so I got this as, as always, I have a debt to Lostpedia for linking to all this stuff. A lot of the stuff Lostpedia links out to is no longer, it no longer exists. Thankfully this article does, which dates back to, Looks like November 13th, 2015. But the title of the article is The Lost Will and Testament of Javier Grigio, Mark's Watch. As he lays out at the beginning of the article, if he wanted a place where he could just sort of ramble about Lost and answer all of the questions that he is consistently asked and give his memoir because he left after the second season. And as he mentions there, he didn't really watch the show until the series finale. So, you know, he mentions how a lot of the ideas that they had, the motto in the writer's room was it's that's what we're going with until somebody comes up with a better idea. So the smoke monster was initially a security system for the island that did judge um, the island's inhabitants and weigh or, or measure the good and evil within them. He says that, you know, the names Jacob and the man in black, those never even existed when he was there. As to what the island was, he makes a very vague reference to that Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof did have a working idea of what the island was. But since that never ended up coming to fruition in the show and they've never mentioned in interviews, he says that he's not going to say what that was. So I have to I just have to assume it's aliens. <laughs> That's uh, fair. Yeah, I. Yeah, I. uh Boy, I can't wait to actually really sink into this. Because, uh, I mean, it's it, so long. Um, it's very long. It's But it's, well, I think it's definitely worth reading. I, I, I see a screenshot here that says Nazis use the island. Um, I see uh, <laughs> he mentioned something that we've talked about a bit with, like, hey, why isn't Saeed the lead? He mentions, like, reading uh, how they were going to kill Jack. And he's like, yeah, you can't kill the white guy. Yep. Um and says he's like, because otherwise, what, you've got either the reformed Iraqi torturer, a overweight Mexican, or a middle-aged white guy with delusions of grandeur, which I'm like, wow, uh, blunt. Um, well, and this is coming from, you know, Grigio Marx Watch, who is, uh, I believe, Latino. Or Puerto uh, Rican, but yeah. Thank you. Okay. he's So he's, yeah, he's Puerto Rican. Um, and this is him saying, like, look, I know how to write for TV. And I'm telling you, you can't kill the white guy, which also brings me back to something that's not in this article, but that is in one of the interviews that I listened to with Damon Lindelof, where he talks about how 
you know, something that we've mentioned many, many times is, you know, the underserving of Harold Perrineau as Michael. And then Damon Lindelof said that he, one of his big regrets about the show is that they didn't do well by Michael and that he did not feel comfortable writing a black character. And therefore, instead of finding writers who could write with that voice, kind of ignored it. And um, and he is very apologetic about that. Oh, and also, Regional Mark's Watch is very adamant that the island was never purgatory at any point, ever, ever, ever. But yeah, it's fascinating reading this stuff and and realizing that because um, I I think we've been pretty fair. We like we understand that it's a network show and that it was very popular and that there were mandates from the ABC about what could and couldn't be in the show. But reading these guys talking about this stuff and and seeing what incredible forces they were up against and the fact that they they had a really solid idea of what the characters were but even something as simple as the flashbacks they had not even considered that the flashbacks would be a running device in the series until they were working on tabula rasa the fact that the flashbacks existed in the pilot was not indicative of, of how the show would be that was sort of just showing you know how did they get to this point it was only during the breaking of the story that they were like wait what if every episode did that and that way it doesn't just give us a way to contrast but it also gives us a way to not just have them grimy and grubby but also you know have them in regular clothes and show what they you know the real world was like yeah man oh man okay yeah i gotta i gotta minimize this um <laughs> I, I just got to the him uh positively talking about uh lindelof and how he's like look this guy's a genius yeah uh, he's very complimentary and yeah network demands i well even because uh, i saw in here that they referred to the others as the jungle creeps the jungle um, creeps which i am so sad that that didn't uh <laughs> didn't carry didn't take or even like a little like nod to it in like the sixth season would have been nice. But um, yeah, uh, he mentions in it that um, the network was really against it. Mm-hmm. And uh, now I'm thinking, well, that's probably why they killed Ethan. It wasn't, uh, it was probably a, a prerequisite or a requisite from uh, the powers that be. Remember where we were talking about how Charlie says that he doesn't remember anything at the end of the episode where they kidnapped him? They actually were going to have it that he was that he had amnesia and that Hurley, when they couldn't figure out what his flashback was going to be, it was going to be that he was a repo man and he hypnotized people to get them to give him their stuff. And that was his thing. And that Hurley was going to hypnotize an amnesic Charlie to find out where they took Claire. And that story breaking took place when Damon Lindelof was on a break and he came back and he was like, fuck, no, that is not what we're going to do with this show. That's not what Hurley's thing is. That's hilarious. I did see too, that they mentioned that one of their B storylines was that Shannon trades sexual favors for things like sunscreen. Yep. Which adds a little bit of context. Cause I know we had questions about this when she's trying to get something from Sawyer and he's like, I'll take an eye on you. Something tells me you're good for it. And she like walks away disgusted. And we're like, was that meant to be like in the window or what's going on? And it's like, I wonder if they were like, yeah, no, she, because that's in their ca- their head canon. That's what she's been doing on the island. It's just like, yeah, it does add some heretofore unknown context to that weird moment. It's, uh, it's oh man, yeah, Ugh. which is uh, also just a, a different Shannon than uh, <laughs> I felt that 
it's just it, yeah uh this sounds fascinating um, and i do i am gonna i'm gonna share this one last thing uh it's the quote that i sent you about the black rock i'm going to quote this verbatim from javier grigio mark's watch one afternoon damon rushed into the writer's room and asked to no one in particular so what is the black rock Paul Dini lifted his head from his sketch pad. He was and is an accomplished doodler and plainly stated, it's an 18th century sailing ship that got beached on the island. Damon exclaimed something to the effect of sold and quickly left the room. A new piece of cannon born from raw improvisation colliding with something that had been planned in the pilot script months before. <sighs> Amazing. Absolutely. That is incredible. <laughs> So yeah, I'm sorry to, to just drop all of this stuff on you right at the top, but it's just, I, I've been so excited about reading this that I, I feel like I've I've gotten one of the most solid glimpses into the writer's room that I've ever gotten, just with this article alone. And it also answers something that I was curious about for this particular episode, because this is the first episode that we're talking about today that was written by Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof. And I was curious when... Cues became co-showrunner with Lindelof uh, because up until this point, JJ was the ostensible showrunner and then it devolved to Lindelof and then Lindelof was very quickly getting burned out. Cues was the showrunner who had given Lindelof his first break on Nash Bridges, which ran from 1996 to 2001. And Lindelof brought him on, the former mentee bringing on the mentor, and Cues almost immediately started I don't want to say writing the ship because that's not the that's not an accurate way to describe it, but started organizing things better, really helped define the direction that the series was going and helped be sort of a manager so that Lindelof could be more of the creative force behind the show. So that answers a question that I had, which is when did it become when did it go from just Lindelof to Lindelof and Cues? Interesting. And actually, this whole preamble does serve. I have a bit of a segue slash before really dive into the meat of this episode similarly as far as disclaimers go i gotta kind of backtrack on something i said because i know that when we talked about walkabout i mentioned how i do think it's a great episode but this is when lost starts throwing in a bunch of stuff <laughs> that they don't answer and this episode does something similar however this does it way better. And I, I will expand <laughs> on that in, a, in, well, I'll expand on it right now. Uh, about, when Locke becomes face to face with whatever the monster is, it leaves you there going like, well, what, what the hell happened? What ha we saw it eat someone and he's fine. What happened? Yeah. What? Tell me what happened. Uh, and this one, yeah, you find that there's a, a plane with priests who were drug dealers and it's a mystery. It's a question, but it's not like I need to know now because mm -hmm. <laughs> otherwise it doesn't make sense. I, I think that that's a big part of this episode for me is that it did world building right, where instead of either having a core plot element of the show be hanging on a mystery, it just plants the seed of a bunch of stuff, including the hatch being about 50 times bigger than I thought it was up until this episode. <laughs> There's a plane in the middle of the jungle. It basically just, and this actually was helpful because the last four episodes, 
I've been pretty lukewarm on. Again, not bad TV, certainly not whatever the case may be, or The Sun Also Rises, or the, the you know, House of the Rising Sun. Yeah. Although I also don't like the Hemingway novel, The Sun Also Rises, but that's a different conversation. Um, <laughs> but I realized that I think part of what made me not like those four episodes was that they all made the island feel so small. Mm-hmm. When you look at something like Homecoming, we already talked about how each one basically goes over one thing. But in Homecoming, you have this titillating others factor, and then you shoot the others dead, end of storyline. And it's like, oh, so we're not gonna we're not gonna find out more about the others, are we? In Outlaws, it may not necessarily have like ended uh, something that, that titillating, but Sawyer is attacked by a boar. He goes in the jungle and finds said boar. And it's like, oh, this jungle is much smaller than I thought it was that for him to have just found a boar. In translation, it's all about the boat on the beach. And then it's almost like a, a sitcom where it resets at the end where it's like, yeah, the boat burned. Now it's being rebuilt. Okay. And I'm realizing that numbers with Hurley was especially egregious in this because not only do we get Hurley retreading the path that Saeed took, but in half the time. But, you know, for a French woman who's been living on the island for 16 years, yeah, he just finds her. And then even when you find something that would almost imply that the island is a lot bigger and more mysterious than you think, when they find a bridge and the bridge goes out, it's like, oh man, how are they ever going to get over there five minutes later? Oh, oh, they just had to go around. They're just there. They just got there. You know, (laughs) so I think all of that stuff makes the island feel small. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, we're retreading all the same parts. Like the island feels like a very small playground, Uh, more like a a small sandbox rather than an actual like island. Um, And uh, this is the, this episode significantly broadens the scope. Uh, Again, not just with small things like, oh, they've dug up more of the hatch. Oh, it's colossal. And it's not even all the way unburied yet. Oh, there's a plane that just was in here. Oh, there's other dead bodies. So clearly other people were here at one time. Like it just, it started to actually be like, there's a lot more to this. And not the least of which being um, looking at someone like Locke, who, yeah, we know his story is that he was in a wheelchair and now he's not. And then they just out of nowhere, add this thing that in no way, uh, at least I know eventually we'll get there, but uh, it doesn't, at all impact the fact that he was in a wheelchair this has nothing to do with that this is just a separate story and it's like oh yeah there's a lot more to this character and this world which is all a roundabout way of me saying i liked it i liked it a lot (laughs) uh this episode was great i liked it a lot as well to your point of it makes the island much more interesting and, and and larger my main note for this episode is that I love the fact that we get this vision slash dream that Locke has where we get very explicit proof that the island is telling Locke something. And that that is really cool to me. Like the fact that it's actually showing him something that we don't know why it's guiding Locke. We don't know to what end, but the island is showing that it has a power and it is manifesting it in a very blatant way where it's not just giving him a vision, but also taking away this gift that's, that it's given to him. 
or that Locke's faith in the island because it's being shaken is causing him to uh, lose the ability to walk again. I like that mystical stuff. By the end, I've watched this episode twice now, and the thing that I came away with is that for all of my criticisms of the show, one of the things that they never spoiled was that the island itself, like let's forget about Jacob, let's forget about the man in black, let's forget about the numbers. The island itself always remains this weird, mysterious force. We have the idea of like the cork and that it stops evil or whatever, but in terms of, we know that the island wants things and the island does things. And I like that of all of the mysteries that I wanted answers to, I never really needed an answer to what is the island because I like that it's just this thing. It's this unknowable, ineffable thing that could almost be considered a god in some ways or or, or even beyond a, some, a god. Like, it's just, it's just this weird fucking thing <laughs> in, yeah. you know, on the center of the earth or something. Like, it's just... I love how weird it is. I love how it gives this weird vision and the idea that maybe it is telling Locke, you need to sacrifice Boone. That's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. I love that hinky-jinky stuff. I love it too. I think that that's some of its strongest stuff, especially in those sort of faith and existential questions of, well, as you know, people who are not nut jobs have said with aliens. <laughs> If there's like a 2% difference in DNA between us and an orangutan, there is no way that an alien species is something we could even comprehend. Like, <laughs> let's assume it's uh, a higher intelligence that has just 4% difference in DNA. We might not even be able to perceive something like that. Uh, it may be on a different uh, spectrum of light, you know? Like, it's uh, in that regard, I think that stuff how you could take something like that and apply it to spirituality as like in the same way that people will look for signs from the heavens. And because there's no proper channel or medium, they may misinterpret what the signs are. <laughs> um, I think that it's fascinating when you watch an episode like this with that in mind. And as Locke is losing control over his legs and his ability to walk, yeah, he stops right at the place where he should to get a window into, oh, here's something from my vision. I enjoy that a lot. I think that the island as just this, yeah, unknowable thing that isn't just an island. It is mm -hmm. something greater. It is exciting. And uh, and I saw, too, in that article that you just said when I was browsing through that the there's like a writer's note of like, what is the island? It's the epicenter of good and evil or something like that. And yeah. It's like, that's a, yeah, I'm all right with that. Yeah. If that was always the plan, that's uh, really interesting. I guess, actually, we should probably rewind and do a welcome to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now that we're uh, 30 minutes into the episode, oh, welcome to the podcast, brother. Welcome to the podcast, brother. Today, we are talking about episode 19 of ABC's Lost, Deus Ex Machina. It originally aired on March 30th, 2005. It was written by Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof, and it was directed by Robert Mandel. I'm Pierce Nahigian, the elder brother. I'm Derek Hobson, the younger brother. Welcome to Losing Lost. 
And I think this will be the first time that I've remembered to say this. If you are listening to this on a podcasting platform of your choice, please uh, write a review. Um, give us a like. Uh, if you if you listen to us on YouTube, subscribe. Uh, give us a like. I, um, I, I, I don't know how else to say that without sounding needy. Uh, but uh, it helps there us. Is, there is there is no way you're gonna gonna take that index finger and just smash that like button. Smash that like button. Um, yeah. Uh, and also, this thank you will come several weeks past when it is first intended. But we've been looking at the analytics, and people are listening to the show. People are downloading it. People seem to be watching it on YouTube. And so, you know, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for listening. It's been, this is just a fun little project for me and Derek, and it's nice that if it's bringing joy to other people and um, even just as a curiosity or a fun uh, little shot of nostalgia. Yeah, thank you. And if you do leave a comment, perhaps uh, we will read them and respond to them <laughs> on a later episode. I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. No, we'd, we'd happy, happy to happy to do so. Uh, would be thrilled to do so. Yeah, I don't know. Where do we where do we go from that? Do we just get into the episode, or we? I really like this episode. This felt like the last I remember. Again, it just like it's so interesting to me in a way that sometimes it's hard to know what makes a good episode of Lost until you get uh, <laughs> injected a good episode of Lost. Yeah, because again, the last four weren't bad uh, and i think there's some amazing character moments i think there's some great scenes i think hurley's flashback is, is a delight uh, I, I think sawyer's has some good stuff although in hindsight knowing that he has that one of him just kind of gripping his gun in his pocket as he asks for a spicy shrimp probably could have been cut down uh but you know it uh it's not that those episodes are bad. They're just, they're kind of like, where do we go from here? And uh, an episode like this really opens up what you're allowed to do. It feels like the part in a video game, they're like, you have to stay in this little box. And once you complete the first few missions, then they're like, okay, here's the map. And, uh, <laughs> That's what this episode feels like to me is it's like, oh, we're through the tutorial. We can play now. <laughs> and uh, and I really liked it. I really, really liked it. Because even again, the flashback, I think, is so telling for where the show goes, because this has nothing to do with him being in a wheelchair. Nice so, little fake out, though, that it makes you yeah, think it that is. it is. <laughs> but like, that's the thing is it's like it's so... It's just like a complete, like, if you think about all of our other characters thus far, again, Kate's, uh, I don't want to, I don't want to retread Kate's. Um, <laughs> all that we've learned is why Kate, or no, not even why, but we just learned that at one point Kate was in Australia. And then also that she's been on the run for a while. Jax, as much as I know you love the white rabbit, it just, it kind of explains what was he doing in Australia. Mm-hmm. And then all the best cowboys have daddy issues, which is still my, my, top ranking episode in my head so far it just kind of it gives you the the prequel to white rabbit yeah. so you know it's still like all the characters that we've received a second flashback of thus far 
it's still been pretty linear. This is the first flashback that to me is like, this isn't linear at all. This is a completely different thing. <laughs> uh, and I think that's awesome. So I was going back through the last four episodes. So episode 14 was special, which we both liked a lot. And then the last four episodes are Homecoming, Outlaws, In Translation, and Numbers. And I think on the whole, I enjoyed those episodes more than you did. I loved Outlaws, I liked In Translation, and I really enjoyed Numbers a lot. And I think you're right about that, that those, they were smaller. It it really felt like, and, we, and we've already established, right, that those episodes were ones that were greenlit after the initial uh, run of 12 or 13 episodes, whatever, whatever number that was. And as much as I like those episodes, it does feel like they are entirely character episodes. It's just really showing you this is who this person is. You move the, the plot a little bit forward, the story a little bit forward, but... Mostly what those are are just character studies. And this episode sets up the end game for the first season because it's worth this is immediately going to lead into Claire having her baby. It's going to lead into Jack hunting down Locke and finding out about the hatch. It's going to lead to us getting to the Black Rock. This is where the forward momentum starts. And it starts with a very definite confirmation that whether it's all in his head or whether it's actual magic, the island is guiding Locke somewhere. It seems pretty hard to explain away how he would know about the Beechcraft, but it's very much like, this is the show. This is the show you're watching. There is magic on this island, and it is it is a guiding force, possibly malevolent. Its idea of, of good and evil might not be your idea of good and evil, so... Well, you know, one of my favorite books, Why Religion Matters by Houston Smith, talks about how in talking about the cosmic grand scheme of things as, mm-hmm. as an answer to the question, why do bad things happen? He brings up, you know, when you have a four year old and you give them an ice cream cone and after they lick it, the ice cream plops off the cone, hits the sidewalk and they melt. They are just in tears. They are screaming. The world is ending. And while a parent who maybe has to deal with debts and a mortgage and, for all we know, a lawsuit or uh, work uh, layoffs, et cetera, who know the world, they're like, it's, it's an ice cream. This is not the <laughs> end of the world. But on a relative sliding scale to that four-year-old, this is quite literally the worst thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. and. So they said, you know, there is a possibility here that were you to then zoom out on a cosmic scale to a creature like God, that would be, for all we know, all knowing, all powerful, something like a Holocaust could come across to a cosmic being as nothing more than humanity's dropped ice cream cone. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and I oh. want to just say, that as a person, no, not I, get, a guy, yeah. <laughs> I feel I, yeah. that the Holocaust is the worst. Uh, Eddie, Eddie, yeah. But I, I just mean that 
in trying to put it into perspective, when people ask that question of why do bad things happen? And yeah, and I think that it's neat that this episode toys with that idea by, yes, yeah, sending a clear, well, what we assume is a clear message. And then it's like, oh, your priests, they were drug dealers. And it's like, were they forces of good? Who, what is, and, and, and of course, this is one of the few reveals that I feel has a significant payoff. And I, and I say that because there are two things that I'll, I'll mention them when we get to them. But uh, when we talk about, and I saw actually, again, in that article you sent that he had a note from JJ that said, yeah, don't show them how the trick is done. And it's like, no, you can show how the trick is done if it's good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, When you do it bad, that's when it's a problem. That's a really, you that, it was very well put and makes me want to read this book. And it's it's horrifying, but it also realistically puts into perspective, you know, what an, a god being, godlike being or a god, um, what their perspective would be. And now I can't stop thinking about God talking to somebody who died in the Holocaust and them explaining how terrible it was and him just looking at them and going, but for me, it was Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Jesus. Um, but yes, and that's, um, but that is exactly the point that, that I'm making with the island is that this is a completely, we don't know anything about this thing. We don't know, you know, how long it's been there. We don't, I mean, it could be timeless. It could be like the house and house of leaves. It just predates the earth. Like it just, the will of the island is maybe benevolent, but not in a sense that we recognize as benevolence. <laughs> um, you can cut this part out, but I gotta mention this because I feel I know I shared this with you. Did you ever watch? It, it's a long watch. Like, I think it's like an hour and a half, maybe two hours. Uh, the the YouTube video on the the custom Doom level that was inspired by House of Leaves. No, you told me about it, or you it, sent me a or you sent me the link. I think I don't think I've actually watched watched it yet. It's it's as a guy goes through it so you know he like walks through a room and he's like that's odd uh but he also starts explaining like this is why this is fascinating this is where the inspiration comes from and it is oh, it you're is already, you're already just you're already giving me the heebie-jeebies like i that's i that that book is still the the creepiest scariest thing i've ever read yeah i i mean yeah it well yeah yeah and I know someday it will be adapted into either a TV show or a movie. And I just, nothing on earth will compare to just the act of reading that book. Like I don't will, even, nothing comes close. I don't know. Well, and just as uh, another digression in terms of shows that are clearly inspired by loss without being lost. I was thinking about this more because I think it was a few episodes ago. We had talked about how would you do lost today if mm -hmm. you did do it i think we were like although you could do just a flat reboot and just call it lost chances are higher that they wouldn't do that that they will do something more akin to something like a manifest or like it's not going to be called lost it's going to have all the trappings of lost but it's not going to be called like it's not going to be a one-to-one -one kind of thing and i was thinking about this more because I just recently was uh, in the background rewatching uh, Haunting of uh, Hill House. And um, 
that is a thousand percent inspired by the narrative structure of Lost, and uh, and it's glorious. Oh. The book is uh, very yeah. I stopped watching it because I I I like the book a lot, and I and I was like, oh, this doesn't. They're doing a different thing. Um, but I I, I did. I haven't watched it past. But I like the um the guy who the showrunner. He he did um yeah yeah. He's done a couple horror I films that I really name. like. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> and I, obviously he did Bly Manor and uh, Midnight Mass and I forget what movie he did. Oh, he did Oculus. Uh, did he? Yes, which I, I thought really it was. Liked. Isn't it the guy who did um, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House? Have you seen that one? No. That is I don't a know who. wonderfully creepy ghost movie. And it's not like I showed it to Maddie and she really didn't think it was scary at all. And I think about that movie all the time. It's more of like, it's not like scary in the sense of like boo and, but it's just like, it's just kind of quietly haunting. Like it's very, I mean, to be honest, that's how I feel about house of leaves because Mm -hmm. even just the idea that the house that you live in, I think of it as like when you've lived in a same space, even if it is just a, you know, an apartment, if you've known it for a while, you wake up and it's dark you typically know like, oh, I, I like my brain knows it's mentally mapped. I know mm-hmm. where everything is. So to have a house that is changing shape when you try and walk around, I was like, yeah, that would that would be so it, one of the most unsettling things that I'm certain is universal is when you wake up and you've like somehow been like perpendicular to where you would normally be on the bed. Mm-hmm. So when you wake up, it's suddenly like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's the window doing over there? And then you're like, oh, oh, I must have rolled in the night. But that initial, like, where the hell am I? Yeah. Um, to me, like, that's the feeling of House of Leaves, but for, like, 2,000 pages. Uh, <laughs> uh, or even just, like, waking up, like, or, you know, falling asleep somewhere where you didn't intend to fall asleep and just waking up and being like, I, I don't know. I don't know where I am. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, All of which is to say. Yeah. We're, that yeah. <laughs> I think that I think that Lost if it were or sorry i think that house of leaves is similar in that i think that you would never get a show called house of leaves but i think things like the the doom level that i i will resend you because it's it seriously like i was captivated i mean i i listened to it at 1.5 speed just because you know who's got that kind of time but <laughs> it uh it is absolutely like a okay this this you got me and at one point when they hit the spiral staircase I'm like, this is exactly what I thought it would be. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, that's too, like, that's is. also what's incredible about the book is that by itself, um, the interior of this space, except for the, you know, the fact that it doesn't have any lights in it, is a house. It's got all this regular architecture. There's nothing intrinsically scary inside of it. And yet it has taken the shape of a house. It is just a house that goes on and on and on and on. And there's no explanation for why it does that or if it wants anything or why it's there, but there is something inside there and it is following you. And it's, huh? Oh, like the scene where, uh, they're like the, the hunter guys like shooting and like the, all those doors just start slamming and slamming and slamming and slamming and slamming. Oh my God. Anybody who's listening to this, if we keep this in the podcast, Go read House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. It is phenomenal. It is it is work. It is hard work to read it because of the very, very unique structure. But good God, it is so worth it. Yeah. It, yeah. 
<laughs> um, and just bring it all the way back. I think that if they rebooted Lost. No, 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 no. Because I, I love it. And again, I think House of Leaves would do the same thing. But I think that if they rebooted Lost, I think they would almost start it where season four is. I think that there would be people, and and Hill House does this basically, where Hill House, their island is the house. Right. There were supernatural elements. There was uh, certainly a climactic event that they don't really reveal to you until the very end, and it's a little lackluster. So it's kind of like lost that way too. <laughs> but um, but I, uh, you know, the house serves as the island, but like where we start is all of these characters who are nowhere near the house. And I was like, that's if you were to do Lost today that's how you do it. You do the opposite approach of like, you're just following characters who are in the world, but they're getting these little hints of like, you could have a character that's like Jack where, you know, someone's like, someone's in the emergency room. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll run over there. And he goes into the ER and sees someone there. And maybe it's an overweight uh, Mexican man. And he has a moment with him where he's like, Oh, and you get this impression that there's something between you guys. What's going on here? And like little by little, the flashbacks are like, at one time, these two were shipwrecked on an island together and some crazy shit went down and they're trying to get back to normal. I love that idea. So you're saying the flashbacks are them on the island. Yeah. The It takes place in the present day and the flashbacks are what that, that's a great idea. That's how you reboot Lost. That's what you do. That's, that's, that's great. That's great. <laughs> oh man. Oh, I love that. That's how you keep it fresh cuz like in the in the modern day they're going on with their lives but we know that some weird shit happened on the island and continued to ha- ah. That's good. That's good. Did you just come up with that? Well, t- today, yeah. But uh That's amazing. Yeah. That's great. Like cuz yeah, you can have like crazy things happening and like people could be like, "Oh, what are the chances?" and like everyone who is like a main player is like yeah, you, they know that there's something, there's a higher power. Anyway, I, I, yeah, I think it, <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're on board. We no, can talk about that's, the that's actually like, because then it's, you have the opposite of the show, but it's still the same mystery show in that they have all been confronted with this force that's beyond them and are having to grapple with it being back in the real world where they're trying to. I imagine most of them would be trying to ignore it. Some of them probably aren't like you would have a character like Hurley who would be probably back in a sanitarium, um, which I, I think is what happens when he in season four. Anyway, I think that's, I think that's a really smart way to do it. And um, if they do it, uh, they should do it that way. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> and then you'd have characters that are like, you'd only see in the flashback and you're like, did they die? Are they still on the island? <laughs> oh, <laughs> but anyway, Oh, all right. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. So we begin in a flashback with Locke working at either a Toys R Us or a Walmart. And he is, this is clearly before he worked at the box company, because not only does he have hair, but he can walk. And he shows a kid the game Mousetrap. He says it is a, it says it's his favorite game, and he used to play it with his brother. And we know that Locke, was in foster homes. And we know that he also had a sister who came back as a dog or didn't. So it's interesting that Locke probably had many brothers and sisters over the years um, if he was raised in a series of foster homes. Uh, And then a strange woman, played by Swoozy Kurtz, is watching him. 
She asks him where the footballs are, and he directs her to aisles 8 and 15. I originally looked up. I was like, where do I know Swoozy Kurtz from? Because her face is so familiar. And she's just been in a billion things. The only thing that I could point to with any authority is she's the mom and bubble boy. <laughs> oh, interesting. I, yeah, she has a very familiar face. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have. I, I honestly can't visualize the mom and bubble boy. I do remember liking bubble boy, though. Um, <laughs> it probably does I, not hold up. It probably very <laughs> early Jake Gyllenhaal movie. That was Jake Gyllenhaal? Yeah, that was Man. Jake Gyllenhaal. All right. I'll come back to that later. Okay. Um, <laughs> a couple things about this scene. Number one, and this is a little bit of a production note. How old is Locke supposed to be? I actually have an answer for you on this because I looked this up. I'm so glad you did. Okay. What is or it? Or rather, I didn't look up how old Locke is supposed to be, but I can tell you how old the actors who play his parents are and how old Terry Quinn is. Terry O'Quinn okay. was born in 1952, which when the show was filming would put him at the age of 53. Kevin Teague, the actor who plays Cooper, and Swoozie Kurtz, the actress who plays his mom, were both born in 1944. Which means that both of those actors would be eight years old when Locke was born. <laughs> both of them are just eight years older than Locke. And, and, and honestly, it... They do not look that old. When they both show up at the show, I was like, wait, what? No. That's, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And I, I'm sure that was intentional a little bit, because I, I do remember a, a flashback in the future with young Locke's mom being like, no, mommy, I love him. I think I think that is, that's Locke's last I mean, here's the thing. If we're being generous, so we know that Locke was in a wheelchair for four years prior to landing on the island. So this flashback takes place at least four years before present day, which means that 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 version of Locke would be 49, but that still would make his parents 12 years older than him. So... (laughs) I just... um, I And I, I don't even know if it's Terry O'Quinn's real hair, but I feel that the hair is doing more harm than good. Because I think it's supposed to, though. He's supposed to look bad. He is a late 40s, early 50s man who is working as a clerk in a in a Toys R Us. Locke's whole story is that completely wasted potential, that anything special that was supposed to happen to him would have already happened. He grew up in a series of foster homes. He felt abandoned his entire life. He never really made much of himself. And that hair is absolutely supposed to look terrible. It's also just weird to see any actor who's usually bald with hair. Like, watch any movie where Vin Diesel has hair or Jason Statham has hair. It just looks wrong. Oh, my God. I actually know because I think Jason Statham was in Time Cop 2. And he has uh, a head of hair that does look weird. Or he might have been in Time Cop 1. I forget. Probably Time Cop 2. I would guess it would be Time Cop 2. It's probably Time Cop I think the Uh, only thing he was doing in the 80s was dancing in a thong in music videos. Oh. I could be wrong. I'm so glad that he has a career now. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, I will say this was one of those things too in the flashback where we talk about like horror tropes and themes. I I took a video of this because again, since I can't screenshot it, it won't let me. But I'll have to send it to you because Locke's mom does just 
up here in the same way that in like a horror movie when like you have like the kids in the woods and they're like what could possibly go on and like in the background you just see like a person yep um yep. and it, she very much it's like like it, it uh between that and like the the dire wolf overcoat i'm like oh man this is a that was such a nice touch is that like it's a jacket that's clearly out of place like it's nobody else is dressed like that she looks like a crazy person yeah and yeah kind of trap that mouse <laughs> i was curious about that where because clearly the mouse trap is meant to but is it is it mean that Locke is caught in a trap? Does it mean that Boone is the one caught oh, in the yeah. trap? Does it mean I? There's definitely a parallel with Boone that I'll get to because I it's I think it was super intentional. But no, yeah, I mean I, he's being uh he's being hoodwinked, and I think they make that clear because then later when the mom reappears after the uh, the con has been done, you know she appears in very normal, properly fitting outfit. Yep, And it's like, you were dressed up to catch his eye between the very red hair and the, the dire wolf overcoat. It's, uh, <laughs> and you know all of that was set up by Cooper. Like, he yeah. probably told her exactly how to dress, exactly what to say. He is a professional. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. On the island, Locke and Boone are setting up a trebuchet to break the hatch glass. And what's funny is that I could be wrong here. But this was certainly my first introduction to a trebuchet. And now I feel like they are so common in both films and video games and stuff that it would be silly for Boone to be like, I can't even say what uh, I can't even spell trebuchet. So I'm going to say that Lost uh, is the originator of the trebuchet trend. Uh, so. I think that's fair. I think that there's a lot <laughs> of stuff like that that winds up in, in like once it becomes part of the public discourse. Because as much as I hate the show The Big Bang Theory, one of the early episodes, you know, they make the comment that strawberries aren't fruit. And uh, huh. everyone just now knows that or like quotes it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, yeah. What are they? Uh, strawberry? Oh, I don't know what they are. I know <laughs> that uh, a fruit is anything that has seeds on the inside. So even a cucumber. Oh, cucumbers. right. Okay. And as we learned from the West Wing, uh, what when uh, Bartlett asked, like, what fruit has seeds on the outside? Just one of his shitty, oh, I'm so does. smart moments where he's just like, how do you not know this? And they're like, come on, man. Stop it. I love his, uh, there are three words in the English language that start with DW. What are they? <laughs> it's like, we already know you're the smartest guy here. Stop being a jackass. Uh <laughs> We learn that they've been working on the hatch for two weeks and the airplane head uh, at the top of the trebuchet absolutely shatters against the hatch and does no damage whatsoever. And this is the first time, I think, that we see Locke lose his temper on the island. Like we've seen Yeah, him, I think that's right. Yeah, we've seen him upset in flashbacks. But, you know, I was thinking about all the best Cowboys have daddy issues where Jack severely tests his patience and he's annoyed, but he never loses his temper with Jack. Even when they're dealing with the others, all the setbacks, this is the first time he really just loses it. And certainly in front of Boone. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. And certainly intentional. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I will say too, just like I, I didn't, uh, you know, I know now from having seen the series that the hatch is like this colossal thing. But watching this episode for the first time in a long time, 
I, it really was a reminder of when they show that this is like this industrial sized water cooler. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I think that's the thing that was lost on me prior is they see a, basically like a window in the ground. It's like, we're going to open that. And I do recall the first time I was watching this being like, why? Like, what 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 significance <laughs> is it? And like, yeah, like seeing that is this gigantic thing. It's like, oh, OK, this definitely has me a bit more intrigued of like, what is this? What's inside there? Regarding that, according to Javier Grigio Mark's watch. So J.J. had pitched the idea of the hatch very, very early on, like as early as the pilot. But Lindelof didn't want to introduce it until he knew definitively what was inside of it. And so some of the things that they had talked about it being was it was part of a submarine that had been dumped on the island and then like su- uh, a nuclear submarine that had been uh, basically covered in earth to prevent it from being uh, a danger. One was uh, an entrance to the Arctic polar bear habitat. One was a like a biodome. There was a couple other things, I think. And it wasn't until Lindelof literally walked into the <laughs> into the office one day and said, there's a guy inside of it and he push it has to press a button every 108 minutes or the world ends. That's what it is. And it wasn't until he said that that they first put them finding it uh, in the jungle. So it was it was only until Lindelof had decided that's what's in there. Interesting. Yeah. I kind of like of all those. I actually kind of like the idea that it's the exhibit for the Arctic polar bears the most. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> I, I am like, that would be kind of neat to like be in an abandoned aquarium. And then you'd be like, why, why was this? Why did you have this here? While yeah. still giving like an interesting change of scenery. Um, you know, honestly, that that does prompt more questions than answers. Because anyway, I <laughs> uh, fascinating. A couple things I really liked about this scene one is i like that they do just gloss over that boone asks him hey one minute you're quoting nietzsche and the next you're an engineer yep um and i don't i don't it's like that is a question i have but they're just gonna they're just gonna move past it um, and i also like the idea that it's like john's like well i can be whatever i want to be uh yep because he's rolling yep. my head then, is that it's a it's a mix of two things it's that Locke has always been very interested in stuff like that, but hasn't really been able to commit to any one thing, which is why he's so lost in life, uh, which, oh boy, can I relate to. Um, and the other <laughs> is that when you are in a wheelchair, it severely cuts down on the other activities that you can do in life. And so I imagine he spent a lot of the last four years just reading. Yeah. And it, yeah, yeah. So no, I, I agree. I, I think that it is... Um justify or i think you can explain it without it seeming like when did you have time to do all this Mm -hmm. but yeah i do like that they don't explain it um (laughs) i also like that this feeds into my working theory that Locke was part of the reason he wanted to rehabilitate boone as like one of the first people is because he has told boone so much more about himself than he want anyone to know i forgot that he tells Boone his story in this. I I think it's the only person he ever does tell. Yeah. I that's a good point. Well, I, in any case, like and he certainly Boone is the only person that prior to this he told him he worked in a box factory. I think it's interesting that Boone's like, you never talk about yourself. And it's like, I wonder if he does if for me that plays to the uh I don't want people to know that I'm not a hunter kind of thing. Right. 
And then the last thing that I wrote was just, I really like, similar to how Terry O'Quinn delivers that meat and potatoes line, <laughs> I really like that Locke's response to Boone is, my story would bore you. <laughs> I, although there were not many good things about George A. Romero's Land of the Dead, one of the few moments that I was quite happy with was when the protagonist is asked what his story is and he's like no no everyone's got a story and i don't want to hear about it and, <laughs> and they like move past it but then later uh someone brings up something and he mentions how like his brother was turned into a zombie and he had to kill him and the person's like oh i thought your story uh was boring is like well that didn't happen to me that happened to my brother and i'm like oh you, oh, you clever compartmentalizer uh, anyway it just it reminded me of that and i i like stuff like that when it's uh it's it feels very writerly but not in uh not in a bad way yeah oh a piece of shrapnel embeds deep in Locke's leg but he can't feel it and then that night, while he's bandaging himself, he tests his leg and finds that he can't feel anything. The next morning, they're working on another trebuchet, and Locke's legs aren't working well. That look on Locke's face when he's poking himself, and then he takes the burning stick and he jabs it into the sole of his foot, he conveys it very well, that it's, you know, 19 episodes, he's been this rock, he has total faith in the island, he loves the miracle that's been given to him, and he has no reason to worry, and to think that this is suddenly being taken away. is its He's terrified. Uh, we get our next flashback. Locke confronts the woman in the parking lot, and she says she's his mother. And him getting hit by the car is very much a fake out of like, oh, 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 oh. is this how we got the wheelchair? No. Nope. <laughs> we learn that Locke was never adopted, that he was only raised in a series of foster homes. And his mom tells him that he's special, part of a design, and that he was immaculately conceived, like Jesus. And he doesn't look like he disbelieves her. It doesn't look like he believes her. But instead of him just having a look on his face, he's like, oh, okay, well, you're clearly crazy. It's just him taking in this information. Like, that maybe? This is one of the things I really liked about Terry O'Quinn. Because as much as I think Matthew Fox and uh, Josh Holloway have been crushing it, Terry O'Quinn has a really subtle performance this whole episode. And I, I think this gets exemplified in the next flashback scene a bit more with the the PI that I would I'm sure we'll talk about. But yeah, like given the events of the rest of this episode, I definitely get the impression that he thinks she's crazy. But like, yeah, you're working at a Walmart. He knows how to handle these people. <laughs> where like, and I think they tried to show this too with like she puts like eight or nine spoonfuls of sugar in her coffee. Like yeah. <laughs> he is watching her do this and is like, okay. Like, and I think that he knows like, yeah, obviously I wasn't immaculately conceived. And I think that it is something that he probably wants to hear is that he's special, but he's also like, okay, this, this woman is, uh, she's, she's, she's spitting some, some nonsense. <laughs> uh, let's just delicately handle her. And, uh, and I'll get a PI later. <laughs> I think for me, it was more of just that, you know, Locke's whole life, he feels like a failure. And to hear someone say, even somebody who he knows is probably crazy, say that he's special, it clearly has an effect on him. Like, even like when he first meets Cooper for the first time, like, he is so starved 
for some kind of family, for uh, some kind of approval, for anyone to tell them, tell him that he's worth something. And um, oh boy, oh boy, it's poor, yeah. poor luck. I mean, he definitely plays as well as a as a man who has never known love. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh God. Um, speaking of which, I just have a, a whole, a, just a general note here that the whole Sawyer needs glasses storyline is not essential to anything that happens on the island. It is a B plot that is clearly there to fill out the episode. All of that said, I do enjoy it very much. I love it. As soon as, um, they, they cut to this next scene of Sawyer in talking to son. I'm like, yeah, they're picking up that thread that they, they left a little scene for. I, um, God, I love it. I, I love everything that happens with this plot. It is really neat how they will do that, is that they really just leave that hanging in the previous episode, where Sawyer just gets mad out of nowhere and just stalks off. And in any other show, you'd be like, well, that's a complete non sequitur. What the hell was that all about? But you know with Lost, and that's why the show works so well if you want to binge it, is that it just follows right on from that? It's like okay, you're. We know that there is a reason there, and that's and we're gonna we're gonna get back to it. That's the thing. I wrote this down because like, God, I'm just gonna beat up on Grey's Anatomy. I mean, they don't need my help to get beat up on. Um, <laughs> I still, as a complete digression, I think it's hilarious because I I was watching the Grey's Anatomy up until their COVID season, where the lead actress Ellen Pompeo, she was so visibly done that she, for the COVID season, gets COVID and goes into a coma for the entire 22 episodes of the season until she finally wakes up at the end. And it is clear that it's like, you were probably paid in the ballpark of $50 million, maybe $50 (laughs) million an episode for all I know, to lay in bed. I don't think they get paid fifty million an episode. She gets paid a lot of money. That, you know what? I, I am gonna look this up because that's just so. I get the point you're making, but that's Ellen she, Pompeo salary per episode. Here we go. <laughs> okay, Ellen Pompeo is played five hundred and fifty thousand dollars per episode, which is very good. Okay, but it is not fifty million. That <laughs> no, is, you could make. Five games of thrones for for one episode. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Fifty million, not quite. But um yes. Yeah, oh shit, hold paid. on a second. Hold on. She racks in an additional six million dollars for syndication profits, totaling nineteen million dollars a year. That's I still not fifty million an episode, but no, but that's god damn it's wow. So um but it's so funny to me because apparently like she has been, and maybe not even low key, because it seems like it's been very obvious. She, for the last like several years, she's like, I don't want to do this. I'm done. <laughs> and they've just been like, well, 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 how much money? And she's like, I, I don't know. Give me another hundred thousand, and it will be fine. I'll lay in a bed. Um, <laughs> to a point where they have cut other actors and actresses <laughs> due to the fact that her salary keeps going up because she it, it feels like she's literally trying to push herself out. And this year, she has finally quit. How uh, long has she been on that show? 24 years. Uh, but wow. um, she also, she's still going to do the voiceover narration for it. But anyway, I just, I, um, why was this relevant? I, 
Oh, I mentioned this because you mentioned liking this subplot of Sawyer. And yes, it is non-essential. What I like about it is that when I watched Grey's Anatomy, every single episode, the reason why these, these shows are a mouthful and you genuinely feel like someone just keeps shoving food in your mouth, like the, <laughs> the Jim Carrey Grinch movie, is because every single episode, every single plot is the best and worst day of someone's life. Uh, to a point where, and I kid you not, at one point, a guy who is engaged to a woman who he served in the military with, and they've been through a ton of shit, he's in the middle of a surgery, and his fiance accidentally butt dials him because she's getting felt up in the break room by her uh, secret lover. And as they start canoodling, he's doing surgery and is like, oh, can you guys answer my phone? That's my fiance. And so over speaker, as he's performing this life or death surgery, you just hear his fiance's sex noises with another man. And everyone's like, uh, do we keep doing the surgery or do we hang up the phone? And it's like, this is, this is so hyperbolic. It's like, you couldn't just maybe just have a scene of two people at home where she's like, you know, I don't love you anymore. That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be enough. It has to be the best and worst of their, of their lives. Anyway, all of this is to say that, yeah, having Sawyer need glasses totally fine and it's enjoyable <laughs> and i like it and if you want to dig into it more i like that for instance he's going to sun because we know from like the last two episodes that she's probably on the outs and we know that she and her husband have more or less divorced but he's on the boat so i bet he's probably trading information about Jin for her help and yeah i took it more as like he just doesn't want to go to jack it's probably what it is but like i like that you could you could in terms of sawyer being in a place of vulnerability i think he could also view it as like a i've got a quid pro quo going with this lady so i can keep this going <laughs> but yeah i i like this plot <laughs> so he's asking son about the leaves for his headaches aspirin doesn't help and kate asks jack about what can cause bad headaches jack knows immediately that she's asking for sawyer and his uh-huh is so condescending i i don't like jack in this episode uh -huh. he comes off as so smug and so possessive of kate that it's i and even at like the end of the episode where he's like i didn't do it for him that's supposed to be romantic and instead it's just like we talk about in uh what, what episode was i just editing uh uh whatever the case may be where he treats sawyer like a garbage person and this is like, and I get it. Jack even, you know, he has the line. He says that all I'll get for my trouble is a snappy one-liner. And if I'm lucky, a brand new nickname. Like, I get that. You know, nobody wants that. But I think he's too mean to Sawyer. I, uh, I, he comes off as a jerk. I think he's a jerk. At this <laughs> I, I, I agree. He's a jerk, but I loved it. I, I think <laughs> this is Jack having a blast and also providing a a service in a way of like just so you know kate this is the type of person you're getting in the bed with see but that's yes and, and you're yeah that is that is what it is and it's so again they've they 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 were never a couple he has no right to be so pissy about this but like i do agree like i think like the the outbreak std you know like it is a it is mean but at the same time, I'm kind of like, 
Yeah, I, I, you know, Jack, Jack's patient with him. He gives him everything that he wants. And it is literally just like at any point, Kate, Kate chooses to be there. Jack doesn't ask him. Jack approaches Sawyer on his own. And Sawyer does exactly what he says he's going to do, which is just provides uh, one-liners. And Jack's like, I just don't want to deal with this bullshit. Like, <laughs> I think that that context is so important because it would be one thing if Kate immediately brings him in and he starts asking him these questions. But because it's followed after Jack's like, I see you've been having some headaches. And Sawyer just keeps like being like, piss off. And he's like, okay, okay fine. I'm done. And it's like, no, Sawyer... Sawyer brings the third party in. And so I, I think as mean as it is, I, I feel much more like I can laugh at this uh, <laughs> because I think that Jack was patient with Sawyer. I also very much love that whole sequence where Jack is shaving and uh, Kate says, so you've been having bad headaches. And he stops shaving. He's like, are you okay? Yeah. She's like, yeah. And and then he goes into the, then who are we talking about, Kate Sawyer? And he's like, he goes right back to shit. And he's like, uh-huh. And I just, ah, oh, so good. I did also like, just from a technical or a practical standpoint, um, that we're showing that, yeah, the reason Jack's beard isn't growing is because they do still have some razors lying around. Yeah. Just, it's nice to, to see that because, you know, we do know, you know, later on that Jack can grow a beard. It looks like a fake beard, but uh, he can grow one. In the next scene, Boone is so assertive that it's a dead giveaway that this is a dream. Yeah. (laughs) Boone would never talk this way to Locke or anybody in real life. Uh, Locke says the island will send a sign. This whole nightmare vision is effectively weird and creepy. We've got what I want to say is called overcranking or undercranking on on the mom um, when you've got that really staccato movement. Oh. And we we talked about this before, that it's really it's the first time that we see, apart from Locke getting the ability to walk, that the island is directing him somewhere, that it's actually using its power to show him something concrete. Because, you know, there's no way that Locke would know about the Beechcraft or that he would know about Teresa falling up and down the stairs or that why he would see Boone. It's weird. It's a weird moment. And it's it's effectively weird. It's it could have come off as hokey, but it's it has that very sort of otherworldly surrealness that you get in in dreams i'm also i'm fairly sure but i I have no way to verify this that they took shannon's scream from the pilot and play it over the dream sequence there is a scream in there and i you you are probably right i was thinking i was like that scream sounds familiar but i don't remember where it happens in this episode so yeah that would oh that's interesting Locke wakes up Boone early and takes him to find the plane. I still find it interesting that Boone is still sleeping on the beach. Like, they, they're they not camping in the jungle. Which I makes sense, considering they don't know what the hell is out in the jungle. But the idea that they hike out to the hatch every day, um, or at least that Boone does, is... is I, I hadn't realized that. Oh, yeah. In the flashback, we find that Locke hired a private investigator. I forget if we learn later that Cooper actually hired this investigator for Locke to hire, but I don't know if that's a thing. It, it could just be a PI. Cause it seems like, I don't know. It seems like the PI would have uncovered something about maybe Cooper being a con man, but maybe not. I mean, if Cooper's covered his tracks well enough, this was one of my questions was if the PI is working for Cooper. Yeah. 
And there's one thing he says in this flashback that seems that maybe, maybe he is. And the only reason I'm hesitant is because I get the impression that Locke has done something like this before, <laughs> uh, where uh, it, I, I, I think that it's, uh, it, it feels like otherwise they would have had a scene of Locke in a flashback being like, so, so how's this work? I, I do this and you give me money or like, like, what do I, but like, that's why like, I'm inclined to think that this PI is Locke's either he's investigated where his parents were in the past or he has been approached by people before hmm. claiming to be his uh long lost brother or sister and he's like well I, I might as well start figuring this stuff out but the one thing that made me think that maybe this pi is a plant from cooper was that he says that his mom has been institutionalized many times for nonviolence for schizophrenia but on the forums they say that she's self she self admits herself. So I thought that was an interesting. I, I guess it may not necessarily be contradictory, because I'm sure that there's probably been times where she has been institutionalized, and other times where she's self admitted. But I thought it was interesting that on the sheet, they show that she the most recent one has been self admitted. So it seemed like the PI either got that information wrong, or was trying to add to cooper's overall con where he's like don't trust this lady focus on your dad <laughs> no yeah that's a good that's a good point it also points out that if his mom has a history of schizophrenia that Locke may have something similar that's a great i didn't even think of that but yeah man yeah <laughs> so when he get when the pi gives him a file on his dad he warns him that this won't have a happy ending. And boy, howdy. <laughs> I will say, so this is actually where I sent you the clip of the end of The Dictator, because this episode in particular, they uh, they give you tons of those arc numbers. Um, and uh, so it very much feels like they know people are paying attention, mm -hmm. which is also why I, like, I paused it on the uh, self-admitted forms. Um, she was also born on October 15th, 1940. Uh, which is the day that The Dictator came out. Huh. And the reason why I mention is because in that final monologue, of course, uh, one of the things, one of the many things mentioned is that they are not men of machines, which I feel like Anthony Cooper is because he is on dialysis. Um, <laughs> the other thing is that this apparently came as a bit of a, like he was working through something like... Um, Charlie Chaplin? Yeah. So Charlie Chaplin, uh, part of the whole reason of uh, allegedly making the film was that this he was born within like six days or something or eight days, actually, I think, of Hitler. And of course, in that same time period, you've got Hitler and you've got Charlie Chaplin. And they're like, there's a weird sense of cosmic good and evil that comes from having the tramp in the same spectrum that you get Hitler. And so apparently this was him when he made the dictator movie. He was working through some of that of like, I was born close or near as uh, as Hitler. And we both went with the, the st like, you know, Hitler adopted the Chaplin stash. And it's like, OK, this is weird. You so know, this I, would like, all seem like such a crazy deep dive, except 
this is the kind of shit that Lost would yeah. start to do. So I I really wonder, maybe this was totally deliberate. I 100% think it is, just because of the whole good and evil stuff. But yeah, like, you could have chosen... You, you could have chosen not to show her birth date. True. And we know that they want us to pay attention because, as we'll see later with Locke's license plate, they want you to be able to look at it. Wait, so you said that she's – so her canonical birth date is 1940? Yeah. So that would actually make her around 16 years old, uh, at least 16 years old, when she had uh, Locke. So, yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, like that whole speech is very much about, like, wanting to pave the way for equality and for everyone to rise up, which does seem to appeal to Locke's whole ideology. And again, just he, the person he's really shouting at at the end of the dictator is the, the men of men of machines, uh, mm. which is Anthony Cooper. So <laughs> I liked it. I think that was intentional. Yeah, no, that's, that's wild. Um, so he goes to the palatial estate of Anthony Cooper meets his father who mentions that if, if, Locke was immaculately conceived. That would make him God, which is who Locke ends up screaming at at the end of this episode. And Cooper invites him to hunt. And Locke, who's never had a father, accepts. Back on the island, Locke tells Boone about his dream vision. Boone asks him if he's been using the paste that he gave to him on Hearts and Minds. And he convinces Boone that the vision is real by mentioning Teresa. Meanwhile, Mike and Jin are working on the boat. Mike is picking up a little bit of Korean. And Jack checks up on Sawyer, who says that my insurance ran out, which, which Jack seems to credit as legitimately funny. Uh, they talk about his symptoms. Sawyer mentions his uncle died of a brain tumor. <laughs> all of Locke's, or all of Sawyer's stuff there is great, where it's like he's being smarmy, but he also is like genuinely concerned. And Jack asks him, like, well, what kind of you know, cancer did he have? He's like, the kind that kills you. <laughs> Yeah. No, and I again, like, I, I forget what other scenes or episodes they do this with, but yeah, there's been so many times where, yeah, Sawyer will just immediately be like, get out of here. And then, like, someone's like, all right, fine, I'm out. And he's like, well, okay, fine. Like, he so hates being on the back foot. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, also like he, like, he just reflexively just has to give people shit and then, it, you know, yeah. has to reset and just be like, okay, I, I got it out of my system. Please help me. <laughs> By far, uh, something that people of the podca- uh, listening to the podcast probably wouldn't know about or care about. But I really love that when Sawyer or when Jack mentions that it may cause phantom smells, how after Jack does walk away from the whole situation, Sawyer looks just like Iris, um, the cat, <laughs> uh, just like kind of sniff in the air, like, like, <laughs> yeah, very much like not wanting to be seen to be smelling, but is very much smelling to see if he's. <laughs> yeah, I love that. It was great. Um, here's something I was wondering about while trekking through the jungle. Locke checks a compass and I'm wondering if this is a continuity error because we have previously established that a compasses don't work right on the island. Not that they don't work, but they don't work accurately. And B, Locke explicitly told Saeed that he doesn't need one anymore. And so, is this a continuity error, or is this a very, very subtle sign that Locke is losing his connection to the island, and he no longer knows where he's going? Ooh. Um, I'm going to say both. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is a continuity error, because he not only 
Does he say he doesn't need it? But he also gives it to Saeed. So yeah, the fact that right? he has one. Yeah. So that's definitely a continuity error. But I will say that that does make sense in terms of, yeah, he's losing his connection. That makes a ton of sense in terms of the actual, like, as not only does he losing his legs, but how else can you show this? So, yeah, I think, yeah, it's both. <laughs> uh, Locke falls and they find a rosary and a corpse of a priest or a man dressed like a priest. In the flashback, Locke returns for another hunt. We don't know how many hunts they've done at this point, at least one. Um, but this seems to have become a regular thing with him and his dad. And Cooper clearly gave him the wrong times that he'd show up to see his dialysis. Oh, yeah. You know, we talked in the Confidence Man episode about how Sawyer does the con so well that you don't know that he's running the con. Like, in, like within the universe of the show, Sawyer is a good actor. Whereas Anthony Cooper, like, especially like that little, like, shake of the head <laughs> that he gives Locke when he's like, you said, I thought you said 11. And he just, he doesn't even say no, he just shakes his head. Like, I get that we're supposed to distrust this guy, but like, I never trust this guy. He's just a little too... It's, you mean... Every way he enunciates birds. Yeah. It's just <laughs> like Kevin oh. Teague is a great, you know, antagonist, but it's just, I never believed that this guy had Locke's interest at heart. He always comes off as, uh, as not a good dude. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's very clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the island, Locke notes that the clothing would completely decompose within two years, uh, might last as long as 10 years for high-quality polyester, which you know, certainly feels like a retcon of what Jack said in the previous episode where they find Adam and Eve, where he's like, you know, this clothing wouldn't degrade for 40 or 50 years or something. Yeah, I, I had to look that back up because I'm like, we Pierce specifically called this out. And I was like, yeah, oh, in yeah. A, in a jungle, it would just <laughs> completely disintegrate or or even just melt into goo when the body just liquefied. Uh, yeah, jungles are not good for preserving anything. You know, I was surprised to hear from my uh, cousin-in-law, who is now a, a doctor, that when they're working with cadavers, there were a number of people whose brains of the cadavers were just mostly liquid like <laughs> i i always assume that the brains retain the shape and it's like nope kind of like a jellyfish out of water sometimes it's very much so i um maddie i don't know if she still does but she used to watch these um videos about people work who work with cadavers and they um they actually take out a brain and you see it and the longer you hold the brain in your hand the more it starts to just Melt is the wrong word, but it very much like it's not like a like a sponge. It like you would think like because of cart. I mean, for me, like I see a cartoon and like a brain is like they pop it out of like a cartoon character's head and it's like this spongy thing and you put it there. But no, it's more like a it's more like silly putty. To think that like that's us. We're just this this silly putty submerged in spinal fluid or whatever. Like it's it's really weird. Also, uh, the spinal cord. Is also extremely soft. It has the consistency of a of a banana. I have I have read, um, that's, which is why you need a you know a backbone to shield it. But yeah, the um, your goo on the inside, and it's yeah, <laughs> it's always unsettling. <laughs> Locke knows what Nigerian naira is. <laughs> I did it. <laughs> I, 
you know, I, I'm willing to accept a lot of things about Locke, but I don't know. I, I, it would have, I would have accepted it more if Locke like looked at the at the currency and was like, well, there's a picture of Ni- of the country Nigeria on the currency, so maybe that's what it is. But for him to just offhandedly be like, yeah, this is Nigerian naira. That's the, that's the currency that they use in that country. It's, I don't know. It's yeah. It was definitely a, a hair too far. I, I was like. It's like I was like, well, maybe there's a game, board game like Risk where you, ha-, and I'm like, no, <laughs> no, this is, this isn't even like vaguely like maybe it's from somewhere in Africa. Nope, just Nigerian. What, what is it, Nigerian Naira? I, I think it's, I think I you said Naira. Yeah, I just, yeah, it did make me look up though briefly because around the same time that his mom was born, not the day, but that year. Nelson Mandela would have been awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And I'm like, maybe that's a connection, but I don't think so. Um, <laughs> or I'm sorry, not uh, not 1940, but her, her driver license was expiring in 1994. Oh. And I believe it's something like I'm a year off where like it, it was either that he would have been awarded it for the year of 1993, but he's given the award in 1994. Like, but I was like, is there a South African connection somewhere? And so no, now you're no, no, that was, now you're just beautiful minding it where you're drawing all these yeah. connections. And, but that's what <laughs> the show no reason, does. There's no reason for Locke to know what Nigerian money looks like. He also finds a gun. I don't remember if they take it, but uh, it, it is there on the beach. Sawyer is sensitive to both light and sound. And Kate <laughs> finally drags him to Jack and his delivery of do i get a lollipop is so <laughs> aggravated it is fabulous yes i uh i adore this i that's all i wrote for that scene is i was like do i get a lollipop because <laughs> also like eventually lily is so small and he's so big and she's just dragging him away as we have previously uh mentioned jack's questions about sawyer's sexual history are mean but it is funny to see him clearly uncomfortable and for kate kate it's just laughing at him the whole time. Whereas, like, I know well, there's a lot of women I know who you mentioned the th- all the things that Sawyer's admitting to here, and they would just be like, fuck this guy. Yeah, no, I, and I know that the very first time I ever watched this, I was very uncomfortable. I did what I refer to as the I, I mantis, which is when, like, I get so uncomfortable that, like, I kind of reel the arms <laughs> in. Um, but this time around, I think this is part of the reason why I was so comfortable laughing uh, with Kate in this is that Sawyer has effectively confessed to Kate in private that he was a prostitute. Like he <laughs> slept with women for money. I, I know that it's, there's more to it, but when you that. think about, well, that's the thing is like, so when Jack asked him, like, have you had sex with a prostitute? I actually don't necessarily even consider this as Sawyer being like, yes, I've paid for sex. Oh, he wants to No, he, he definitely oh, I'm, has. <laughs> I'm sure that he has. But I also, like, it doesn't feel like sleazy because we know that he's been on the other end of this, where he's effectively been the prostitute. So, like, it's one thing when the first time I watched this and I, they get to that line of questioning, I felt uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, yeah, he's so sleazy. Of course, he slept with a prostitute because he was so desperate to get his rocks off. But on a rewatch i'm like no he's he's told kate that like yeah i well i mean i had a super fucked up childhood and 
uh, wound up becoming a gigolo and defaulting to this sort of con man life, like it doesn't feel like this was a sleazy thing. Like I also think that he could have easily gotten an STD from one of the many wives that he had to seduce. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, and yeah, and it's like he did this to get by. I think that's the thing is like it, the reason why I don't mind laughing with it is because it feels less like I'm making fun of you for how sleazy is. Yes, that ja- that's Jack's intent. And it's clear that that's what he's doing. But the thing is, between Sawyer and Kate, they both know that it's like, no, this isn't necessarily he was a sleazebag. This is I needed to survive. And this was something that happened as a result. And yes, it's embarrassing. Yes, it's painful. But I also, as far as like Sawyer and Kate's relationship goes, I. I don't think this is anything that she didn't already or wouldn't have already assumed. That's a very good and, point. Uh, so but, I, I feel okay laughing. But the fact that we know that Sawyer may have a permanent STD is the only thing I can think about when they hook up in season three. When clearly <laughs> they're not using condoms. I was like, Kate, he might be having an outbreak right now. What are you doing? I don't know if Sawyer is the kind of guy who's going to tell you. I, you know, I imagine though, honestly, because he did become such a good con man that if he had something like, it probably is something that he's probably one of those ones that you can clear up (laughs) because (laughs) he's like, I gotta make sure I don't leave a paper trail. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta get rid of this thing. But if I gotta con a doctor into giving me the meds to take care of, I don't know. I I just, I don't get the impression that he's been, I don't think Sawyer has herpes. (laughs) <laughs> is what I is what I'm saying. I think I that know. Sawyer isn't it like one in one in four, one in five people have it. Someone on that island's got it. It's probably Shannon. I mean, <laughs> uh, no, it's not Shannon. Uh, uh, <laughs> like after all of that, in case just giving Jack a look, he's like, he needs glasses. He's being yeah. a big baby, and I'm being there a jerk. In the jungle, Lot collapses. He tells Boone that he was paralyzed for four years. He says the island is taking back its miracle. And Boone has total faith in Locke. And Locke, I think very deliberately, calls Boone son. Yeah! Help me up, son. Oh, man. And I, yeah. In the flashback, uh, on the hunt, Cooper calls Locke son. And, I mean, that's basically, that's all that happens in that part of the thing. I I just had another note here that, like, he's very good at this con. Like, he knows how to manipulate Locke. But he still comes off as sus to us, the viewer. Like, we know that this isn't going to go well. Let's go get your bird. (laughs) (laughs) Boone tells Locke that Teresa was his nanny. He's partially responsible for her breaking her neck when he was, I think he says when he was six years old. And Locke starts laughing, and they see the plane. Par for the course, Locke being diabolical. Yep. Locke tells Boone that he's going to climb up. I, I, I get that it's a show. And this is the drama. But if it were me and I saw this Beechcraft just precariously perched on the cliffside, I would walk around the cliff to see, hey, maybe there's an easier way up than having to climb, I don't know, 100 feet up to this thing. But instead, he just, yeah. he just shimmies up, <laughs> up the branches. Just goes up. Yeah, no, there's a there's a million better ways to. And it, as you mentioned, it's, it's for the plot of the show. But yeah. I. I'm also like, I I would also need a little bit more of, I'd be like, what what do you think is in the plane? Like, yeah. <laughs> why, why do we have to climb into it? 
In the flashback, Locke and Cooper are in the hospital, and Locke says this was meant to be. Uh, on the beach, Jack brings Sawyer glasses, which amazing foresight to keep that many glasses uh, <laughs> from the refugees on the island. Jack tells Sawyer that he has hyperopia and lets Sawyer squirm for a little bit before explaining its farsightedness. Oh, Hurley says that it looks like someone steamrolled Harry Potter after Saeed in his only appearance melds two frames <laughs> together. <laughs> I was like, this is so unnecessary, but I love it. Yeah, it was it was pretty cool though. I liked uh, I liked that. It was like, oh, of course, that's how you would would do that. You would because you wouldn't, uh, you know, you have to work with what you've got. Yeah, I thought that was neat. Uh, and Sawyer is so self conscious when Hurley makes fun of him, and it's uh, it's you almost feel bad for him. But Sawyer too is also a jerk, so you know I think it all balances out. Boone climbs up to the plane and finds a bunch of Virgin Marys full of heroin, and this is a direct reference to. Locke's mom, who claims to be a, a sort of Virgin Mary. We get a map of Nigeria, and the camera briefly pans up to the Sahara. And I think we find out way, way down the line in either season four or five that there are certain, like, like wormholes, basically, in the Earth that you can travel to or from the island. And I believe one of them is in the Sahara. Because I remember, because doesn't Locke, when they push the donkey wheel in season four that Locke ends up in the desert yeah. more finds him. Yeah. And, and Ben does too at one point. And actually, I guess what's her bucket? Uh, the super annoying red haired lady, Charlotte, Charlotte. She, she digs up a bunch of stuff in the Sahara. I think. Yes. Like she a finds, bear yes. Yep. That's exactly what happens. And I think it's, Oh man, I remember that like somebody, says something really flippantly it's like it's like locks like oh, i ended up in the desert or something in widmore or somebody just says like yes that's one of the exits and then that's just it's like that don't say that like it's we're not there yet i'm not i should I, i'm not gonna get mad about it i know i mean just uh, thinking about charlotte and like i don't want to see her ever <laughs> <laughs> but so uh boone finds the radio and you actually hear somebody on the other end and for a first time viewer this is an incredible moment He's actually making contact with what you think is somebody on the outside. But I believe we find out later that this is Bernard. Yeah. This is an example. There's one more that'll happen in this episode. But th this to me is the example of the magician showing how the trick is done and it not being impressive. Like <laughs> this, because yeah, this is like on a first watch, I remember being like, oh, like, and again, that part of that world building of like, hey, we, we, we just got contact beyond the, the recorded message. This is a big deal. So when they reveal that it's Bernard, it's like, oh, that's disappointing. Mm -hmm. To me, that's an example of a magic trick that like, this is like Locke getting hit with a car, but instead of immediately him getting up and you're like, oh, okay, so that's not how we became uh, in a wheelchair. This is a, uh, I'm going to let this linger for the rest of summer into the next season and then reveal it. And it's like, well, that's not worth it whereas i think something they did do well is something like the nigerian plane where i find that whole story to be very satisfying yeah it's funny how they as as they create a denser and denser knot of connections and mysteries that some of them turn out to be really satisfying and some of them don't get answered at all and some of them get the answers and you're sort of like well i i don't like that answer the plane falls and squashes boone like a bug this doesn't look like they did this with a miniature like, I don't know how 
I don't know if they would have built a, a full-sized plane and actually like driven it off a cliff. Like it looks like a full-sized plane fell off a cliff and smashed into the jungle. If it's a miniature that they did it with, I'm extremely impressed. I couldn't find information on on how they did that, but uh, it looks great. And by great, I mean it looks like Boone is Boone is not going to make it. Yeah, no, they, 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 yeah. Boone is left bloody, like in Locke's dream. Uh, in the caves, Jack tells Kate that he helped Sawyer for her, which is, again, supposed to be romantic, but kind of feels shitty to me. Locke brings him Boone and lies about how he was hurt, which, as we find out in the next episode, potentially could have saved his life if he'd been able to tell Jack exactly what was going on. But, it was a uh, sacrifice the island even. Uh, you're right. Uh, (laughs) Boone's chest is a mess Kate is extremely upset Locke runs away in the flashback Locke wakes up alone and knows almost immediately that he's been duped and his mom shows up and says it was all Cooper's idea tells Locke that he orchestrated all of this including telling him that he was immaculately conceived in order to get him to find him he drives to Cooper's house the guard won't let him in and driving home, he breaks down sobbing on the side of the road. He feels utterly abandoned and used. And it's it's heartbreaking. Well, there's a few things that are unsaid, but I think are fascinating to think about with regards to Cooper's character and his perception of Locke. Because unlike in typical con man fashion, such as Sawyer, where you do the con and you move on, Cooper clearly thinks so little of Locke, finds him to be so inept that he's like, I don't need to move. He can know where I live. What's he going to do? Jump over the gate? No. What's he going to do? Follow me outside my home? No. That level of disrespect or condescension, he's like, I can do this and walk away, and I don't have to think about it. He doesn't want Locke for anything other than his kidney. It, this is all to do that. And once it's done, wipes his hand of it and just goes back to his life. Yeah. It's so cold. And well, and like, and it made me think too more about like Cooper and uh, what's her face? Uh, the, his mom's relationship where, you know, cause then she's like, he was, he had to, he gave me the money. He's always been good about that. And it's like, yeah, this is kind of like uh, the Joker in The Dark Knight, how he specifically employs people who are, you know, schizophrenic mm-hmm. or wild cards because it's like, who's going to believe this person? And I'm realizing, like, God, that's kind of that's so twisted because I'm sure that he's used her in the past for other things, you know, uh, and uh, th- there's so much unsaid uh, in in this kind of a sequence. I completely, by the way, until you mentioned it earlier. Uh, missed that yeah because he uh, calls himself god but that's yeah lock shouting at god yeah um, yeah he screams god uh, when he's punching the mirror in his little pathetic bug which the license plate uh two more arc numbers oh i didn't even uh, notice that yeah they have uh one that's not so subtle i think it's like three abm and then i want to say it's like 16 four or something like that, or 16 and 9 or something to throw it off or whatever. But ABM, because then M is the 13th number, B is 2, A is 1. So that's your... What the fuck? They, it's, like, it's, just, it's stuff like that where it's like, that's why I was like, there's got to be something with the license, because I'm like, this, this is so intentional. 
I um, this show, man. Um, but uh, oh yeah, and then and then the episode ends at the hatch with Locke sobbing and asking, "Why would you do this?" And then a light turns on inside the hatch. That was the other one that I put was kind of unsatisfying, is because like it is probably Desmond taking a dump. <laughs> well, we do find out. I think in early season two or maybe at the end of season two, when uh, we're learning more about his story, he does, he hears Locke screaming at the hatch. I don't know why he didn't hear him at any other point. And he does shine it up. And it's, it's supposed to be actually a, an uplifting moment for, for Desmond because it's, it's evidence that there's other people out there. That the, oh, right. Yeah. Cause isn't, yeah. I, I almost want to say that Desmond is about to commit suicide now that I've, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, oh man. Yeah, I forget it gets there. It goes there. Yeah, because he's just been... Because I think that's after he kills... um, Accidentally kills um Clancy Brown. And he's just alone and... Oh man. Anyway, so that's Deus Ex Machina. And we're setting up for, for the ending of the first season. And, uh, you know, as you said, it is a good episode of loss it is a very solid episode you've got some good character moments and you've got some very sad moments and uh the island has shown us a sign that's probably a good spot to end it